You're listening to The Lid Is On. I'm Connor Lennon, and this is the third in our mini-series, Humanitarian Leadership Stories, produced in collaboration with the UN Humanitarian Office, OCHA, and presented by Daniel Johnson from UN News. Today's episode features relief veteran Najat Roshdi, formerly the senior UN representative in Lebanon and now special envoy of the Secretary General for Syria. Welcome to this podcast, UN humanitarian leadership stories in their own words. Rare insight from frontline responders who are helping people with acute needs in some of the most challenging and dangerous places in the world. From UN News, in association with the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. For more podcasts from the UN, go to UN News Audio Hub. One of the things that really keeps me going is when we came up with the center to fight the sexual violence against women, and not only sexual violence, it's a gender-based violence in general. I think uh, most of them, they completely gave up on everything. They have lost hope, they have lost everything. And then you start, you know, through the assistance, uh, through the support to, first of all, restore the hope. When you talk about gender-based violence and those issues, we need to make sure that the girl child is at school and remains in school. UN aid leaders Alan Nudahu on South Sudan and Najat Roshdi on Lebanon. Their stories are coming up in today's podcast. Thank you for listening. In this episode, we find out how the UN's top humanitarian coordinators strive to protect women and girls from gender-based violence in emergencies, and how they promote equality and non-discrimination to stop abuse from happening in the first place. Humanitarian work is often about saving people in emergencies, but it's also about laying the groundwork for positive and sustainable change for affected communities. Part 1. Gender violence, the global problem. Around one in three or 30% of women worldwide have experienced physical or sexual violence. And prevalence rates are higher in some countries struggling with years of conflict. In some crisis settings, more than 70% of women have experienced gender-based violence. In part, this is because emergencies shatter family and community networks that protect potential victims from abuse. So let's hear now how the UN's humanitarian coordinators push back against all forms of gender-based violence, including sexual violence, early marriage and sexual exploitation of women and girls, from the Central African Republic to South Sudan, Somalia and Lebanon. Here's Denise Brown, humanitarian coordinator in the Central African Republic and second in command of the UN peace mission there, on how she's addressing the problem which is disturbingly widespread. As we'll hear, the stigma that victims are subjected to by their own communities and often by their own families, twinned with a lack of healthcare, are two of the main reasons why most don't come forward for help. It's endemic in this country. And women and children raped in the field when they're working, sometimes in schools, at home, when they're alone going to collect uh, firewood. So humanitarian community linked to the development actors, linked to the UN peacekeeping mission. It's really about ensuring, first of all, protection. 
So knowing where these incidents take place, so mapping those, and we've started mapping this. Secondly, to provide essential services. So a woman who's working in the field, who's been raped in the field, she's not going back to that field. So she's losing revenue. So what kind of support are we providing? Medical support, ensuring that the PEP kits are in the health centers supported by the World Health Organization and the Ministry of Health, and also justice. So I oversee justice in the peacekeeping mission. And so we've pushed. And this past year, there was a special criminal court session just on sexual violence. So it's all of those different elements. We are working towards ensuring that services are there, support is there. But listen, it's also about stigmatization of these crimes in the Central African Republic. So for a woman or a young girl or child to step forward, it's very difficult and a lot of courage is required. Part two, face to face. From the Central African Republic to Beirut, where preventing gender-based violence is a critical task for humanitarian leaders. For the UN's aid coordinator for Lebanon, Najat Roshdi, supporting women survivors of domestic abuse goes hand-in-hand with perpetrators being held to account for their actions. One of the things that really keeps me going is when I remember, you know, that because we stood our grounds, And because we have mobilized everybody and because the humanitarian community was there, we have been able really to make a real change and to give a new life, actually. And that's one of the things I uh, really remember was when we came up with the center to fight, you know, the sexual violence against women and not only sexual violence, it's the gender based violence in general. I think most of them, they completely gave up on everything. They have lost hope. They have lost everything. And then you start, you know, through the assistance, uh, through the support to, first of all, restore the hope. Of course, because I am a woman, it was definitely much easier for me. And I have to tell you, my male colleagues, they never appreciated when I was going and meeting with those women and I was looking at every single of the male presence and I was telling them, out, I will stay alone with them. And I did it every single time. That's what I would call positive discrimination. You're listening to UN humanitarian leadership stories in their own words. Fascinating first-hand insight from frontline responders tackling emergencies all over the world. In South Sudan, gender-based violence is a daily reality for women and girls too. But there are strategies which can help women and girls at risk of gender-based violence, and committed humanitarians are doing their utmost to implement them, with the help of affected communities. I heard about some of them from Alan Nuduhu, the UN's former top aid official in South Sudan. Part 3. Breaking Down Gender Barriers Gender-based violence is um, a major headache in South Sudan. In terms of what we are doing about it, I can say, for example, that we have programs here on gender-based violence to try to really deal with the people who are victims of gender-based violence by providing what we call a one-stop center through which assistance is provided. And that's a joint UN program working with the government. And uh, assistance are provided for psychosocial support, legal assistance are provided, and all the formal assistance are provided to people who are a victim of that. We also have different campaigns that we push in the country. 
we are involved in campaign to prevent early child marriage, which is also another phenomenon here, where people can actually get the daughter married as long as 11 years old. One of the things that we have also been engaging in is to promote and push for stronger women representations in the decision-making circle, both in the executive but also in the parliament. Because if women are in those bodies, they will be able to make the decision that better reflect the condition in which they're actually living. Including women in decision-making processes seems like common sense, yet women remain severely underrepresented in all spaces where decisions are being made, including in South Sudan. Here's Alan Nuduhu again, who explains why it's so important to talk to local leaders about social norms that condone discrimination against women and girls and encourage them to take the lead in shaping community attitudes. I was in a place called Torit, and we had discussion about child marriage with a local chief who was actually a young chief. And we were basically saying to the chief and to the people in Torit that it was important that we prevent child marriage from happening and for that child, the youngest uh, child in the family be protected, and in particular that girls are led to go to school. But then the reaction that we got was that, well, if this is part of our local traditions and our local culture and that we can discuss, but those are things that we should leave alone. And so we say no. And as you say, part of our work should be at all levels. So what we were able to say, I discussed with the local chief was that, listen, as wise people, we are the guardians of our own culture. And him as a guardian of the culture, he has the space to start to make the small changes that will allow the woman in his community, in his household to be protected. It was something that was very important because we didn't just leave it at the fact that this is just part of the culture. We engage at that local level and by engaging at that level, complemented by what you are doing at the central level, this is how you're going to have a lot more momentum to try to get a better change. The story has to be that we are not asking for a favor. We are basically saying half of the population of this country, and sometimes more than half, are being basically put on the side, not going to school, not protected. If you are missing more than half your populations, in terms of your contribution to your recovery and your economy, you're not going to get anywhere. You need to get everybody involved, and that's the right thing to do, but it's also something that is actually economically sound for you to do. Part 4. Do the right thing. From an internal organisational point of view, there's a lot that can be done to tackle gender-based violence too. At the very top of the United Nations, gender equality is a key priority for the UN Secretary-General, and this message is well understood by humanitarian leaders. In Jordan, the UN's aid leader there, Anders Pedersen, believes that humanitarian teams and their partners should understand that the fight against inequality and discrimination is part of their daily work, not just an optional add-on. That's no small thing when you consider that the Syrian conflict is still creating mayhem just across the border. So, how do you keep gender front and centre in people's minds? There's always, of course, competition for space, competition for attention, competition for resources. I'm very, very cautious of this 
siloed approach. I'm very cautious if we speak, for example, gender to have specific initiatives on gender or specific actions on gender or anything of that sort. I think having worked on something like gender equality for most of my professional life, I think we've learned, and I think this goes for the other particularly vulnerable groups that you're mentioning, that that doesn't work. It has to be fully integrated. It's almost a like of a way of doing things. At the end of the day, it's about non-discrimination. That we stand up for the values of the UN and the most basic value of the UN is non-discrimination. And that means that it's not about singling out specific groups. It's about bringing them all in. For one reason, because it's a right. It's actually something that is deeply enshrined in the international legal system, but also because it's the right thing to do from a purely operational point of view. We know that we get the job done better if we actually do include women in all stages of the process. We know that for a fact. The same goes for any other specific group that we want to highlight or that we want to include in particular. From Jordan to Somalia now, where a long-standing insurgency, repeated drought and mass displacement have created not only one of the world's biggest and oldest humanitarian crises, but also a dangerous environment for women and girls living in makeshift settlements. In the capital, Mogadishu, a series of shocking sex attacks convinced former UN resident and humanitarian coordinator Adam Abdelmullah to push for positive change. In partnership with the authorities, he encouraged them to pass legislation to tackle such crimes. There were episodes of young women who got gang raped, and one of them was murdered here in the capital. That was an opportunity for all of us in the uh, UN system to talk to the state authorities about how important it is for the country to pass a legislation against uh, sexual violence against women. And that also enabled us to mobilize all the government's international partners to engage with the government on that issue. There are competing legislations as we speak before the parliament, one of them very conservative, the other one very progressive, supported by the UN system. And we are pushing as strongly as we can so that a legislation could be passed against gender violence. So the human aspect of it is very important. It is not an academic debate in the vacuum. For Adam Abdelmullah, making sure that women's experiences inform the UN's humanitarian response is just as important as making sure that victims get the support they need to withstand future shocks. When it comes to women and gender issues, the best tactic that I saw in every duty session I served in is actually to empower the women themselves to do the work. Okay, The more tools, the more lessons of experience, the more resources you provide to the women, the more they are able to claim the rights and assert themselves. So we are doing part of that. And the other part is to keep talking on the basis of all the international and regional commitments that authorities have ascribed to, that they are duty-bound as national leaders to honour those commitments. Adam Abdelmullah there sharing his experience of leading the UN's humanitarian operation in Somalia. For more episodes from this series and to see short video profiles and insights from other aid chiefs from Burkina Faso to Syria, just search online for OCHA and Humanitarian Leadership Stories now. Thanks for listening and goodbye.